listening to the Community Conversations podcast published by Blood Advances, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. I am Dr. Margaret Ragney, Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and Director of the Hemophilia Center of Western Pennsylvania and Associate Editor of Blood Advances. I'm your host for today's interview with Dr. Adam Zucker, Assistant Professor of Medicine and of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, Clinical Director of the Penn Blood Disorders Center and Director of the Penn Comprehensive Hemophilia Thrombosis Program. We are discussing his recently published manuscript, ASH 2018 Guidelines for Management of Venous Thromboembolism, Heparin-Induced Thrombocytopenia. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Maggie. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, your recent guidelines that were published in Blood Advances are really uh, extraordinarily clear and concise in terms of guiding physicians in diagnosing and managing HIT. We do have a few questions for you and for our audience. First, of course, congratulations on this historic accomplishment, updating the guidelines for diagnosis, prevention, and treatment uh, in the setting of HIT and in many uh, areas. Uh, so first, I thought it would be really helpful for our audience to know a little bit about the background, how the previous CHEST guidelines changed to become the ASH blood advanced guidelines, and more importantly, how these guidelines compare with those previously published in CHEST. Well, thanks, Maggie. So um, just to be clear, uh, this is not sort of uh, an evolution of the CHEST guidelines per se or a, a subsequent version, but a truly new and different effort. Um, as uh, you know, because you are in the field like me, the CHESS guidelines for many years were sort of our Bible and really set the standard of care in the world of thrombosis and anticoagulation. And the last truly comprehensive uh, CHESS guidelines on this topic were published in 2012. And, and since then, um, the CHESS, American College of CHESS Physicians has decided to scale back that effort. They did publish a, a smaller version in 2016, but it wasn't um, the sort of comprehensive uh, guideline on thrombosis and antithrombotic therapy that they had published in the past. And for example, there weren't uh, any recommendations in the 2016 guideline addressing HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And so around the time that the American College of Chest Physicians decided that they weren't going to do comprehensive guidelines in this area anymore, um, ASH was receiving a lot of feedback from its membership, really clamoring for clinical practice guidelines. And uh, the organization really saw guidelines as very important, not only to help members in their clinical practice, but also uh, to guide policy, um, to help with decisions uh, by payers about what services to cover. And so we really felt like um, this was an important direction that ASH wanted to go. And so ASH decided as its sort of first uh, major foray into guidelines after making this sort of commitment to get into the guideline space was to pick up where the American College of Chess Physicians was sort of leaving off and develop really comprehensive guidelines on venous thromboembolism. And so there are going to be 10 different chapters all related to different aspects of venous thromboembolism, and we're very excited uh, that these are being published in Blood Advances. And as you know, 
um, the first six of them, including the chapter on HIT, are uh, coming out. Well, again, congratulations. Thanks for that really concise uh, uh, summary uh, of, of how this fits into the previous guidelines. So as one of the originators of the 4T score, we wondered if you could update us on whether 4T is still the optimal strategy to diagnose HIT and if the platelet factor 4 heparin ELISA is the immunoassay that is still recommended as a gold standard for a diagnosis. So what is new? Yes, yes, I uh, think so. This is an important question. And let, let me just start by saying that um, although I have definitely uh, been very interested in researching the performance of the 4T score, I, I, I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. And so it was really Ted Workington at McMaster University that originated this score, and he and his colleagues have um, continued to develop it. Uh, and so I've been a part of that, but I wanted to make sure I gave him credit as the true originator of the score. Um, but in any case, yeah, we do think so. Uh, so when you are asked to see a patient for a suspected hit, the first thing to start out with is some assessment of the clinical or what we call pretest probability of hit before any hit laboratory tests are ordered. And there uh, is quite a bit of evidence, and high quality evidence, to suggest that the 4T score is a very good way to standardize an approach to estimating the pretest probability of hit. Its particular strength is in its negative predictive value. So a low probability 4T score has a very high negative predictive value, which means it's really a, a robust and easy way to sort of rule out hit at the bedside. So you can quickly decide which patients don't need to have hit laboratory testing and don't need to be empirically treated for hit while you're waiting for the lab test results to come back. Um, and so we do think that that is the best way to start. And in fact, there is a recommendation in the guideline to use the 4T score rather than a gestalt approach uh, to estimating the clinical probability of hit. But then, of course, based on the 4T score result, there are different directions that one can take. And um, one of the things that, that I'm most excited about uh, in terms of this 2018 ASH hit guideline is that for the first time, a hit guideline will provide an evidence-based algorithm um, in terms of an approach to the uh, diagnosis and initial management of a patient with suspected hit. And it's a step-by-step -step algorithm. How do you start? What do you do based on the 4T score? So, for example, if a patient has an intermediate or high probability 4T score, you treat them empirically for hit and you order an immunoassay. What do you do based on the immunoassay result if the immunoassay is positive? You continue your treatment for HIT and order a functional assay. And, and then all there are different branches in the algorithm, for example, if the 4T score is low probability or the immunoassay is negative. So we, we think that this is going to be very, very helpful to clinicians, this step-by-step -step algorithm when they are approaching patients. And we hope that it will improve patient outcomes too, of course. Great, great, great. So I wonder if you could say a few words about limitations of that diagnostic approach and if you ever anticipate that there might be other better scores in the future. What's, so how do you see this in the, over time? Absolutely. So there are certainly limitations. So I think um, when it comes to estimating the clinical probability, 
probably the most important limitation is in terms of positive predictive value. So I mentioned that uh, a low probability 4T score has a very good negative predictive value, but the converse is not true. That is, an intermediate or high probability 4T score only has sort of a modest positive predictive value. So many patients who have an intermediate or high probability 4T score actually end up not having HIT. And so there's a very large potential for sort of over-treatment, at least initially, um, and, and over-testing. And, and so it would be really great to develop clinical scores that uh, have the, the high negative predictive value that the 4T score has, but at the same time improve upon its positive predictive value. And so that, that's been an area of um, interest to me, certainly. And we have developed another pretest probability scoring system for HIT called the HEP score. HEP stands for HIT Expert Probability Score. Um, and uh, in a study that um, was actually recently uh, completed and, and actually recently accepted into your journal, Blood Advances, it shows that for the most part, unfortunately, the HEP score doesn't appear to be much better than the 4T score. Um, although we did identify improved specificity in two special situations in patients in the ICU and when the scorers were trainees rather than uh, more senior physicians. And so perhaps that will have some potential to improve uh, the, uh, our, our ability to estimate the pretest likelihood of HIT. But I think that um, it may be hard to get make further gains in this area. It may just be that the signs and symptoms of HIT in many cases are relatively nonspecific and we cannot hope to uh, achieve very high specificity and positive predictive value with our clinical tools unless we were willing to uh, have that come at the cost of sensitivity and negative predictive value. And I don't think most of us think that would be a good trade-off because we feel that missing a case of HIT probably has more dire consequences than over-diagnosing and over-treating HIT. So that's really very interesting. I'm I'm interested in your new score, but I'm most particularly concerned that the trainees are doing better than us uh, more seasoned folk. Uh, and uh, maybe that would be a very interesting source of uh, uh, further 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 studies, further information, and perhaps we need to be retrained. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 let me just clarify, Maggie. Actually, I, I probably didn't make this clear. What, what we found in our study when we compared the 4T score with, our, with the HEP score is that when, when more senior and experienced hematologists conducted the scoring, it, it didn't really matter which one they used. They, they achieved about the same oh, results either way. I but when it. trainees used the scoring systems, they achieved better results with the HEP score than the 4T score. Oh, and, hey, and we, yeah, so it's kind of interesting, and, and we think the reason for that is because the HEP score um, is, in, in our minds, probably a bit less subjective. So if you are familiar with the 4T score, yeah. one of the items asks you to sort of estimate the likelihood of another, other causes of thrombocytopenia, and you can... Um, and and it's, it's very subjective and, and, and subject to inter-observer variability, whereas with the HEP score, rather than asking someone to estimate the likelihood of other causes, it just says, does the patient have A, B, C, or D potential other causes of, 
of thrombocytopenia. And so it sort of removes some of the subjectivity uh, from the equation. And, and maybe for somebody who's less experienced, that could be, that could be a value. Great idea, great idea. Okay, well, I think we're going to turn a little bit more to treatment of HIT. So do you anticipate that treatment will continue to change as we have the availability of newer uh, direct-acting uh, anticoagulants, or are we any closer to preventing HIT or identifying why, in fact, it truly does occur. And as one of my colleagues suggested, why not just stop using heparin altogether? Uh, I realize that may not be an option, but at any rate, I'd be interested in some of your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. Maybe I could speak to treatment first and then talk a little bit about prevention because they're both important topics. So uh, with respect to treatment, this, this is actually one of the brand-new areas uh, of our guideline that, that differentiates it from past guidelines. And, and it really shows how treatment of this disease has evolved over time. So if you look, for example, at the 2012 CHESS guidelines on HIT, um, there are really recommendations for two treatments for patients with acute HIT, either denaparoid or argatroban. And in our guideline, we have five treatment options listed. We still have denaparoid and argatroban. We also list bivalirudin. We also list fondaparinox. And we also list the direct oral anticoagulants. And um, I think that w one of the things that uh, readers will notice when they see our guidelines is that we don't express a preference for one drug over another. And, and the reason for that is intentional. It might seem like that's not very helpful to users who are trying to make a decision about how to treat their patients. But what the guideline panel decided was that the best drug is going to be different for different patients in different situations. And so it didn't make sense to express a, a general preference. And so we recognize that, for example, different health systems will uh, dictate drug availability, and so different clinicians may have different drugs available to them for the treatment of it. Clinicians may also have different levels of experience with the different drugs. And then finally, there are patient factors that are likely to determine what the best drug is for a given patient. So, for example, uh, a patient who uh, is critically ill or is judged to be at high risk of bleeding or uh, high risk for needing an urgent unplanned procedure in a patient like that, you might prefer to use a drug like Argatroban or Bivalirudin because they have short half-lives and can be turned off quickly. On the other hand, if the patient is really stable, if they have good organ function, if they're sort of otherwise getting close to discharge, you might prefer to use Fondaparinox or a direct oral anticoagulant um, for all of the obvious advantages of those drugs, you know, fixed dosing, no need for routine laboratory monitoring, easy to transition the patient to outpatient therapy. So uh, we give clinicians a lot of options, and we try to provide some guidance on the different contextual situations where you might choose one option versus another. So that's the treatment piece. Um, and then you also asked about prevention. And so I will say that our guideline doesn't directly make recommendations related to prevention, but um, perhaps we should think about doing that with the, the next version because I think it's a really important topic. And 
I think the very best data on this topic come from uh, a study that was led by Bill Geertz at the University of Toronto and published in Blood a couple years ago, where they basically made wholesale changes to their anticoagulation protocols in their hospital, in their institution, uh, and whenever possible, tried to remove unfractionated heparin from those protocols and replace the unfractionated heparin with low molecular weight heparin. And what they found, um, and this is not surprising because we know that low molecular weight heparin reduces the risk of HIT compared with unfractionated heparin by about tenfold, they found a dramatic reduction in the incidence of HIT in their institution. And so I think the surest way to prevent HIT is to avoid use of heparin when possible. Now, now that said, there are still situations where heparin is the clear favorite. And so we, for example, now most of the patients that we diagnose with HIT in our institution are cardiac surgery patients. And as you know, heparin remains the preferred anticoagulant during cardiac surgery, bar none, right? It has a short half-life. It's easy to monitor with ACT in the operating room. Uh, it can be reversed quickly with protamine. It's very familiar to anesthesiologists and perfusionists. And so it is uh, the strongly preferred anticoagulant in that situation. And I think for the foreseeable future, it will continue to be. And so that means that we will continue to see uh, patients who develop HIT, particularly in that population. And so um, while we can prevent HIT in certain contexts, I think it is not going away because we will continue to use heparin uh, in situations like that. That was just superb. Uh, I enjoyed your uh, discussion of this issue, and certainly uh, the cardiac disease and heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is a very interesting whole set of other issues as to why it's so common. Um, I'm really uh, at my last question, and I guess I'm just going to sort of throw it out there. What do you think are the greatest differences in your guidelines and the past chest guidelines with regard to HIT? You, you really have touched on them, but just as a sort of a summary. Sure. There are a whole bunch of differences. I mean, first of all, I'll say that our guideline contains 32 recommendations. So there are a lot of recommendations that we hope will be useful to clinicians. We really try to keep our eye on making these user-friendly um, when, we, when we develop these guidelines. I think if I had to highlight two major differences, these are things that I have mentioned already. One is that we have a step-by-step algorithm to guide the diagnostic evaluation and sort of initial empiric management before you confirm the diagnosis of HIT in patients with suspected HIT. And um, it's interesting, and past HIT guidelines have focused, I would say, primarily on management of patients with an established diagnosis and have some degree sort of glossed over diagnosis. And we made the conscious decision to focus very heavily on diagnosis because, in fact, I think that's where some of the hardest decisions that we make in this in this this area uh, and that we face in this area. You know, I think um, I don't know about where you work, Maggie, but in my hospital, there's no question that the most common reason for hematology consultation is suspected hit. And, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, and multiple patients every week were asked to weigh in on um, does this patient have hit, and and should we treat this patient as though we have hit? And so we we're we're very hopeful that this guideline is going to help 
you know, the many clinicians out there who are being faced with those challenging questions uh, every day. And and then um, a second difference that I want to highlight again, I think really just reflects the evolution in treatment options for this disease, whereas older guidelines, you know, and not we don't have to go back that far just to the 2012 just guidelines recommended conventional parenteral agents for HIT like Argastroban and Denaproid. Um, we, we now have many more options, including Fondaparinox and the direct oral anticoagulants. And, um, so I think that that's a, a, an important difference with, from past guidelines that reflects developments in the field. So, Adam, first of all, thanks so much for doing this with us. Congratulations on such an historic accomplishment and uh, really for such a clear and concise discussion of, of, of your new guidelines, and we're very excited to uh, see more from you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Maggie. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Blood Advances Community Conversations. Visit bloodadvances.org to listen to more author interviews and to subscribe to the Community Conversations podcast. Music for the Blood Advances Community Conversations was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening.